Our text this morning is Luke. That shouldn't surprise you. We're making our way through, even up and through Easter, uh, we'll be looking at this gospel. It's in Luke that uh, we find in chapter uh, 12. The, the text is, by the way, on page 871 in the Pew Bible. Pastor, uh, Pastor Matt and I didn't cover, uh, when we both were preaching the same text last week, we didn't cover the final verses of chapter 11 going into chapter 12. But more or less, I'll encourage you to read them on your own. They're primarily an illustration of what we talked about last week, which is the peril of denying Jesus for who he says he actually is and uh, not following him and not enthroning him as Lord. That's particularly a problem for those who are of the religious, serious uh, category, the, the, uh, the Pharisees, the scribes that he refers to uh, in their hypocrisy. And so uh, he says, you listen, all at the beginning of chapter 12, all of that's going to be revealed for them, for all of us, uh, who we really are will be ultimately revealed. Uh, our character, our life, our heart, it will all be revealed for what it uh, truly is. Recall that Jesus is in the, the latter phase of his earthly ministry. He's making his way to the city of Jerusalem, but not to be enthroned as a political power or king, but that he might be enthroned on a cross, that he knows he is heading toward uh, suffering. And he's going to, in these, uh, these next uh, chapters, we already begin to see it. He's focused on the disciples, what he uh, desires for them to encounter and grow in, that he's talked about prayer. Uh, he's talked about other elements of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that's where we find ourselves uh, this day. We're grateful that we have a word from our Savior. We're grateful that we have a word from our King, the God-man who brings us, if uh, accompanied with the power and the work of God the Spirit, that we would be both confronted and we would be comforted all at the same time. That is, that is entirely possible. I don't know about you, uh, but sometimes I, I don't, I, I mean, I do get confused when I read God's Word, uh, but I really get confused whenever I read the news. Because it seems like there's always things that are, are shifting. What, what's to be trusted? What, what do we understand to be true? Right? Like there's, there's things that's the, the standard wisdom of the day. And then lo and behold, two weeks later, it's a different narrative altogether. Where else can we see this illustrated except when it comes to nutrition and exercise? Right? <laughs> right? I mean, come on. It's like it keeps changing, you know. It used to be that eggs were bad for you. I'm glad that they stopped saying that. Not that I stopped eating eggs. But now I feel a little bit better about eating eggs and butter because that's supposedly good for you. And then there was this thing called coconut oil. Right? Like, I don't like coconuts at all, but it's supposedly really good for you. Until about a couple of years ago, when a professor at Harvard uh, School of Public Health said that it's pure poison for you. I think that's a little bit strong. I mean, typically I think of like battery acid as pure poison, but evidently it's not coconut oil anymore. That has too much saturated fat. It's bad for you. Do you ever get the, the, the feeling that you'd love for them to just go ahead and come around they, whoever they is? Right? And just acknowledge what we all know to be true that donuts and fries are good for you. Amen. <laughs> Could we agree on something? Well, we're not here to gather around what they say. We're here today because we're gathered around what the eternal word of God has said and continues to say as God reveals himself in his wisdom to us. Isaiah 40 says, The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So in deference to that, would you please stand as we open it? Luke 12. We're going to read beginning in verse 4. 
Hear this. This is the word of God. I tell you, my friends, this is Jesus speaking. Do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom after he has killed, he has killed you has the authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why? Even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made you me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable. And he said, The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere else to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Verse 22, And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If you then are not able to do as small as a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like each one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink. Do not be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fall, fail, where no thieves approach and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You may be seated. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. We pray that God, right now, you would be glorified, that you would be pleased. Uh, to send us, to, to grant us your spirit, Holy Spirit, to work in our thinking and in our listening and our responding. Lord, if things are cloudy, I pray that you would make them very clear abundantly that we might be both confronted and comforted. 
Lord, I pray that you would satisfy us right now, each person here, that you would both satisfy us and you would sanctify us by your truth. For Christ's sake, we pray and ask. Amen. Uh, Life is uh, more, just to echo Jesus's words, uh, more than what you eat or when you drink. But some things really do go well together. I mean, fries and Coke, they go really well together. And someday we're going to find out that they were actually healthy for us. Okay, maybe not. But there are two things that Jesus refers to here that do go together real easy. And they're both not healthy. They're called greed and worry. Greed and worry. They do go together. You know, once I heard it put this way, it's kind of, I think it's a, a, a helpful way of capturing it. Greed is considered, excuse me, worry is considered the emotional counterpart to greed. Worry is the emotional counterpart to greed. You see, greed says and thinks and feels and relates like this. You can never have enough. And worry is afraid that it will not have enough. We live in a society, we know this, we live in a culture that is nothing shy of neurotic when it comes to things of money and clothing and food and material possessions. I know that they, whoever they is, continues to put pressure, and we see this through various media channels, against things that are not good. We have pressure against racism. We have pressure against being overweight. We have pressure that presses in on all various forms of addiction and gambling and things of that nature of sexual harassment. And that's all good. But there's not a whole lot of pressure against these very socially acceptable sins of materialism and worry. True? True? Instead, it's actually inverted as if we are to feed those things, that we should encourage, that we should be all the more concerned and more focused on the material. But Jesus begs to differ. Here's the three questions uh, that are listed there in the order of service. What are we to do with worries? Where are we to store treasures? And then lastly, how are we to relate to God in view of all this? That's pretty straightforward. What should we do with worries? There's a lot spoken of here by way of anxiety or fear or worries. Jesus at various turns references these things. One of the things that we could do with worry, one of the ways that we could deal with it is to dissect it, to take it apart ever so slightly even, even to dissect it and say what's behind it and what is it, where is it directed? We might fear death, right? That's mentioned by Jesus in verse four. We might fear the approval and the praise and the opinion of other people. Jesus refers to that. That's real. That's in verse 8. We might even fear something with regard to our health or our possessions and wealth. And Jesus refers to that in verse 22. Could be a number of things. If we're honest, when we digest and we dissect our worry, we know that it has a way of revealing where our heart is, maybe what, what we love in our hearts and what we lack in our minds. Because there is something of poor thinking that Jesus is trying to address here. It's not merely a thinking thing. It's deeper than that. But there's something exposed by way of what we love and what we lack. What we love in our hearts and what we lack in our minds. Worry can show that we love things. Worry illustrates that we love things like control or that we love the the opinions of other people. But it has a way of pushing out the love and the control of God. 
or at least our acceptance of it. God's always in control. What you love and what you treasure in your heart will always be revealed. If you, don't, if you really want to know what, <laughs> what a person's priorities are, you don't ask them. They might tell you that may or may not be accurate, but you just look at how they spend their time and their money. And then you might even find a way of digging even further into what really occupies their headspace at times that would constitute things like worry. Our thinking is lacking. Our, our, our minds at times, it might even be entirely counterintuitive to think this way, but Jesus is saying that feeding anxiety will not extend your days. This is an exercise and in, in, in really studying the ridiculous nature of it, if you, you think to yourself, if I worry, because somebody has to have that job. Might as well be me. And it might as well be me about the rest of my story in life and my, my details. And God says, no, no, no. If you actually worry, not only are you not going to add a single day to your life, you may even suffer for less. You might even shorten your life. That's what he's referring to in verses 25 and verse 26. Let's read it again. Look there, if you would, when he's saying not to be anxious. Verse 25. And which of you, by being anxious, adds a single hour to the span of his life? If you then are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about all the rest? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If you can't control small things, of course, control is always an illusion. But let's just assume that we think that we have some type of control over small things. And then you, you realize we don't. Then why would you be concerned and worried about all the rest? And you might say, but I still need to understand. I, I just need to, I need to just kind of look at all the angles and, and think about all the details and, and replay in my mind all of the ways that this could spin out and, and really give a careful attention to that. But you can't and you won't. We won't. And you don't. You don't need to. You won't be satisfied even. Who's to say that you will be satisfied if you preoccupy your mind with all of those angles and all of those questions? Many people are afraid of flying. I'm not one of them. I have my own set of fears. Flying's not one of them. I fall asleep every time the plane takes off. Literally. It could be a 10 a.m. flight. And it's something about the movement of that plane that I get in the back and the, and the, 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 the hum of the noise in the cabin. I fall asleep every time. I'm just glad that the pilots know what they're doing. They get up there, and what do they do? They press that button. It's like you just cancel out the, you know, the law of gravity, and then all of a sudden the plane just takes off, doesn't it? Oh, no, actually, they don't. They get up there, and they understand a greater law. What is that? They, along with Boeing and Airbus, understand the law of aerodynamics. And so the law of aerodynamics, they have a greater understanding of that. I don't know the nuances and details of it, but it gives lift. And somehow this little pill-shaped thing of metal is flying 30,000 feet in the air. The greater law that's operating, by the way, just, just to kind of parse this out a little bit more, there has never been a time that being critical or analytical of all the bad things that could happen actually affected change. Do you understand this? Do I make sense? No analysis of bad things ever ultimately has the power to change. We need a greater operating power. As, as Thomas Chalmers talks about, the great Scottish preacher, he says, the, the expulsive power of a new and greater affection 
to take what's occupying our hearts and minds and to push it out is to understand instead the greater power and the greater wisdom and the greater love and the greater control and the greater authority of King Jesus to set our minds there to then push out the lesser. Worry can take a terrible toll on people's lives. That's true of all sin, whether it's anxiety or greed or lust, or the list goes on and on and on. They, they have a detrimental effect even to our own story and health. Of course, worry can take a terrible toll. Kent Hughes, one author, puts it this way. Worriers feel the blow that never falls. They cry over things that they never lose. Worriers fear. Worriers suffer. Worriers sour and wither and twist. And worry is something that's common to us all. To others, I know that it can be a tremendous burden. An unwelcome and unwanted guest. So what are you to do? Well, there's many things. I think ultimately here, we should take and we should surrender it. All of our worries to God. We're invited to do that very thing. One of the passages that I, and it takes humility to even take that, that next step. But First Peter 5, a verse that I memorized long, long ago. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty right hand. That at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. That's where I can take them. That's where I can relinquish and deal with them. I'll say more of this about this in a moment when we talk about relating to God. Well, let me move on. A lot more can be said, and we'll come back to some of it in a moment about worry. Let's look now at this next question. Where should we store our treasures? First, let's talk about cookies. Does it seem like I'm hungry? Uh, <laughs> I'm not, but, you know, where do you store cookies? And, and, uh, and let's not be confused with the, the normal place, the proverbial cookie jar. I'm talking about cookies that are on your computer. They seem to know more about you, right? They know all of, they, there's this thing on your computer that stores and it knows how to feed you towards ads and opportunities and news stories and shopping. It's like they know me. It's like they have some kind of insight. These news stories just pop up that correspond with what I was just searching on like, you know, an hour ago. I'm like, that's interesting. Hmm. I don't know why this week I got the story of how to prepare for nuclear war. <laughs> I also got one that says how to prepare for retirement. Evidently, these cookies know that I'm in my 40s and I'm not well prepared for retirement. But evidently, all of a sudden it pops up, Troy, your net worth calculator. Okay. I don't even know exactly what that entails. It has something to do with assets. It has something to do with debts and liabilities. I'm not really a finance guy. But let's just consider here for a moment. Jesus says... If you want to do something by way of inventory to ask if you're prepared for nuclear apocalypse, maybe not that, maybe not even retirement. What's your spiritual net worth? Here's how I read it put. It's your spiritual net worth is what you have that money cannot buy and death cannot take away. What's your spiritual net worth? It's what money cannot buy and death cannot take away. And then Jesus says, okay, now I want you to travel with me over here. And let's, let's take a look at this guy's life. Let's, let's, let's look at this parable here of this guy who by every definition that we can imagine is successful. 
I mean by any modern or even a definition of their day, is entirely successful. I mean, look at this guy's life. He is secure. He has so much. If you pick, you know, if you start the, the parable starts there, when he says in verse 16, the parable of the, the land of a man who's so rich, he had so much, you know, had so much, he looks at all of his crops and he says, what else can I do? I've got so much. Let me just tear down my barns and build bigger ones. This is a guy who's retiring in his 40s. Man, this is, this is desirable. I mean, I like the sound of this. Small problem. As he delighted in this, as he kicked up his feet, as he began to enjoy probably the envy of the friends around him, he dies. I don't know, maybe it's a, a stroke or a heart attack or just some accident. It shouldn't surprise us, of course, because life is very short and it's but a breath. But there's another problem because then Jesus says, well, let me just go ahead and write his obituary. In fact, let me just go ahead and tell you what his epitaph says. You fool. But he sounded so wise. What? I, I don't understand. Now, to be clear, there is nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with personal property. The Bible doesn't speak against either of those things. The problem is, 1 Timothy 6 is, it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It's all about our attitude towards money. Over half the parables in the New Testament, Jesus uses money as a point of reference in it. I've heard it said that money is much like fire. It can be a wonderful servant, but a really bad master. It's pretty humbling. You know, when I was in Bangladesh last month, I, I, I saw people so impoverished. The, the gentleman that heard me preach the gospel, who's a Muslim, uh, Manan, he has a small tea shop. And the way that he heats the water in his tea shop is by taking uh, cow manure and he dries it out. And that's the source of fuel that he uses to heat up the water. Meanwhile, in America, we're complaining about the price of home oil heating cost. It's kind of humbling. It, it, is, it is very humbling to contemplate how much we have. When I got done preaching, one of them asked me, how much do you make every year? Obviously, they don't know Americans because we don't talk about that kind of thing. <laughs> I almost said, well, my typical answer is what my children always do. My children ask me about how much something costs or how much I make. I say, enough. <laughs> to him, I, I almost said, more than enough. And he probably would have been like, well, I'm ready to share. You know, you, you ready to share? <laughs> it's about our attitude and our posture towards money. There's a reason that the Bible says, that uses this phrase, and we ought to press ourselves to consider it. The Bible makes reference, and we're all rich, by the way, by any stretch of the imagination or standards globally. But the Bible says this, the deceitfulness of riches. Do you know what that means? 
Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm discovering it time and time again. Because the Bible, has, the Bible has a way of just peering right into that problem, the deceitfulness of riches, because riches at times deceive us into thinking that money can buy things like safety and security, joy and happiness. It will provide for us freedom, that if I have money, then I'll have acceptance, then, I'll, then I will be able to gain the respect of other people. Plus, I'll just say this, materialism. Some of you are like, well, that's not me. My, you know, the net worth calculator is going to be putting it in the, in the negative. You can be poor and greedy. This is not a problem for people who just have an abundance of things and great wealth. It can be easily a problem for those who have less. That's why they're slaves to debt. Where are we to store our treasure? Well, verse, 40, verse 33 says that we should store it in heaven. We should, be viewed to, we, we should have a view towards the kingdom of God. Then it says in verse 21 that we should be, he warns, so the one, verse 21, who lays up treasures for himself, that's a problem because he is not, what? Rich toward God. What does that mean? What does that entail? Well, it means a variety of things. And the way that we relate to the things of creation, the way that we relate to our creator, and the way that we relate to people who are made in his image. It means that you rest. For one, to be rich towards God means that you rest. You rest from the anxious thoughts and the hard labor. Sure, if you were to work seven days a week, it might advantage you financially. And it will impoverish you spiritually because you will not be with the people of God. You will not be, you will not be here. And you will spiritually wither and you will be poor towards God. What else does it mean? It means that you would share. Not only because it will give you joy, and indeed it will. Many of you have experienced it firsthand, time and again. It's more blessed, Jesus says, to give than to receive. You know this to be true. But it's not just about our joy in meeting the needs of other people. We give freely because we know that it doesn't even belong to us. One of my favorite books, Randy Alcorn, The Treasure Principle. The first principle in the book is this. The Lord owns it all. All of it. And I'm just a steward. I'm just a manager with his money. And I have what? Regardless of what I have monetarily or with possessions, what has he told me that I have in verse 32? Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We, we invest in the needy and we give to kingdom work because that's the only hope. If you want to know what the antidote to greed and materialism is, it's generosity. I, there's nothing else. I've heard it says that you should give until it hurts. I don't think so. Jesus says that if you don't give and you cease to give, it should hurt. Well, let's just, let's just move on. How do we relate to God in all of these things? Well, there's three things that I want to say with respect to how we relate to God. And this is just kind of under how, how, he, how he functions in some of his titles. The first one I would say is we need to relate to God. This text, I think, would have us see 
as our judge. That is true with the, with the person and work of Jesus. I mean, we, we have to grapple with the words and deeds of Jesus. They convey something. They challenge something. They, they confront us in our lives. I mean, this is kind of in our face. The reality that Jesus is not simply an example to us of morality. He's not just calling us to be in, you know, uh, you know, uh, an emphatic or a sympathetic friend that he could charm us. He's not even, Jesus is not even the, the needle on a moral compass helping us to stay to our true north. He's not a buddy that just wants to cheer us on in the jolly happiness of everyday life. Jesus, as we'll probably say on Easter Sunday from the Apostles' Creed, he's risen from the dead on the third day and he will, go, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. If you fear the opinions of others, or even if you're just apathetic, I bid you to come and consider again the weight of what Jesus says in verse 5. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom after he is, he is killed has the authority to cast you into hell. He has the power to judge our lives. He's saying, replace the fear of man with the fear of God. Or as one author I read put it best, if you fear God, you can either fear God or you'll fear everything. If you don't fear God, then, when you will fear, then you will fear anything or anyone. But if you have the fear of God in your life, then you won't fear those other things. To fear God, by the way, I'm not asking us to press upon that notion our ideas of, of emotional anxiety. I'm talking about the fear of God as a healthy mixture of worship and awe and trust and respect, even joy and wonder when we fear God. The psalmist puts it this way. Let me read two psalms, in fact. Psalm 147. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. He just said something about fear and love all at the same time in the same sense with respect to the same person. The next psalmist Writes 130, but with you, Psalm 130, verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. We fear God and we take hope in his steadfast love and his great power. So we relate to him as, as judge in respect to these things concerning materialism and fear. The second thing is we relate to God as our father, not only that, but a very generous father. God the Son here is highlighting for us the very character of God under whose care and whose custody we live and operate. There are a few truths here. Look again, verse 6, and then he says the same thing. He echoes it in verse 24. God cares for who? The birds of the air. Those unclean, the Jews would have said, those unclean ravens of the sky. He even provides for them. Animals. God says you're worth so much more than they are. Verse 7, he knows even the hairs on our head. In other words, he doesn't have just some kind of sovereign power. He has an intimate knowledge about the tiniest detail of your life and my life. That's good news. Verse 27 and verse 28. Look again with me if you would. Consider the lilies. He's talking to the plants. Consider the lilies, they grow. 
They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, even Solomon, all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Surely there was a moment in Jesus' very own experience as the God-man living on earth that he picked up a flower and he thought, and he, and he, just, he just looked at just the, the beautiful intricacies of it all, which he spoke by the power of his word. And he says, isn't that hilarious? This is so decked out in finest detail and symmetry and color and beauty. Even Solomon, with all the wealth from all around the world and all the, the, the wonderful things that perhaps the Queen of Sheba brought him that we read about last week, doesn't even compare to this. Well, lastly, I would say, so we relate to him as our judge. We relate to him as a, a generous father. He's given us, as I said, verse 32, the whole kingdom. He, 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 he considers us more valuable and of greater worth in his affections and love towards his children. The last thing is that we need to relate to God as our sovereign surgeon or physician. Anyone can say to you, many people have said to you, have they not? From politicians to your siblings to that self-help book you read last month, don't worry. Stop worrying. Anyone can say that to you or me. Like the woman who was about to undergo surgery and she looked at the young resident who was uh, new to surgery and he said, don't worry, you're in good hands. Right before surgery. And she said, I wasn't until I saw your hand shaking. My brother's always said, there's arrogant people that you want in your life and a surgeon is one of them. You know? Uh, it doesn't matter what he says. A good physician, though, will, anyone can say, don't worry, but it's only God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who comes with the authority and the control to say, don't worry about your life and your possessions. And like a good physician... He understands our symptoms, but he has a way. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here by probing just a little bit further. A good physician will, will go through a, uh, you know, a battery of questions. And then a good physician, he or she will put their, their finger on it oftentimes. And they might, even, they might even probe down in your abdomen or maybe that, that ankle that's got a problem. And they'll say, does it hurt here? Is that, that's it right there, is it? Is it hurt here? The sovereign surgeon, who is the generous father, says, here's what your problem is. It's you, verse 28, you have such little faith. Now, I would be discouraged, but I'm so glad that whether you have a, a small faith, little faith, or a great faith, they both have the same Savior. Even small faith is sufficient because it was never about our faith except the object of our faith who is the sovereign surgeon who is also a savior. Why is he to be trusted, right? Because he will always, are we, are we, do we trust God because we say, well, he'll, he'll make the story turn out sweet. He'll alter the circumstances. He'll give me a reason to have hope and joy and not worry and not be greedy or materialistic. No, it's not about the change of circumstances. It's not about rewriting the story. No, even if everything falls apart, even if we find ourselves entrenched and enslaved to fear and materialism, 
and our love of control, the generous father, this is why we trust him. Because he, he says this to us so clearly in Romans 8. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's so generous. So to summarize, how to relate to him? Well, as our, our judge, as our father, as our physician. Don't worry. Don't love money. Fear God and love God. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I don't know what else to say. Let's ask for his help. Father, before we come to your table, for which we're very grateful, we thank you for your word. We know that, Father, in trials and troubles and in temptation, it would be better if you were to teach us more about treasuring Christ. Would you please forgive us our sins, the times and ways that we've been living as if you don't care, as if you're not in control, as if there won't be any judgment day, as if you're not generous. Forgive us, have mercy. Please, Lord, minister to those who face the very heavy burden at times, even the anguish of emotional and mental anxiety. I pray that you would minister, that you would deliver them, that you would send your ministering spirits, your angels to them. I pray that your word would be rich and sweet. I pray that you would help us all to feel even the weight of what we've read concerning materialism, that it would even bring change. Would you forgive us, Lord, from worshiping material goods? Our unbelief has gotten us in trouble. We've even been deceived multiple times over by riches. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to relate to you as our final judge, our generous father, and our sovereign physician. Help us, please, to be like sheep who draw near to the shepherd and hear your voice and follow you. Lord, I thank you so much for answered prayer. Thank you, God, for answered prayer as it pertains to this pandemic, towards lives and details and stories and people that needed hope, people that needed healing, you've answered. Lord, we stand right now and we remember our brothers and sisters who are facing all various forms of persecution. We think of those who live in the weight of, of, of war and we pray especially that you would have mercy and bring peace to Ukraine. We pray especially for the church there. We pray for the church in our own community, Lord, for other churches that herald the good news of the gospel, for New Hope, for North River, for South Shore Baptist, for First Baptist in Weymouth, even here, the Lutheran Church of the Cross. We pray for each of these churches. We ask that you would bless their witness, that you would keep their, their leadership unified, that you would keep them and us on mission so that your kingdom would come and your will would be done as we're about to pray, even now in Jesus' name as he taught his disciples to pray, saying together, Our Father.